Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're excited to welcome to the podcast today, Erin Bartram. Erin is a school programs coordinator at the Mark Twain House and also a co-founder and co-editor of Contingent Magazine. Erin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Before we even get into anything, uh, why don't you just tell us what Contingent Magazine is? Because I think it's an important publication that people might be interested in uh, learning about, uh, both in terms of its mission and the content that it produces. Uh, Sure. So Contingent is a digital nonprofit magazine of history that, what what are our current taglines? Prioritizes, publishes, and pays historians working off the tenure track. Uh, Our general sort of way of thinking about uh, what's important to our magazine is that history is for everyone. Every way of doing history is worthwhile and historians should be paid for their work. So we don't publish anything unless we can pay for it. And we publish contingent scholars, uh, graduate students, high school teachers, people who work in museums and archives, people who have in general, some postgraduate education in history, wherever they work. So for some people, that's you know, adjuncting in history at three different universities. For some people, that's working in elder care facilities. Uh, so it's a wide range of authors, but it's generally to allow a lot of the work that is done by scholars that will never get published in any other form, uh, not only to be published, but to be valued in one of the ways that our society recognizes value. So you don't pay an exposure. That's fascinating. <laughs> Uh, uh, my my landlord is a professional church. musician, so uh, <laughs> so if there's going to be someone who knows that that's not legal tender, it's it's him. <laughs> <laughs> of, of all people, yeah. But we we don't pay an exposure, and we don't put things behind a paywall, which is what would happen if this material was published in an academic journal. Right, right, and we could talk about the the um, <laughs> joys of academic journal. Uh, stuff later. Um, sure. But uh, why don't we essentially start at the beginning and talk about the thing that made you uh, a public figure, um, an essay you wrote. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the essay, what motivated you to do it, and what was effectively your argument within it? So, yeah, the first one. So uh, I decided not to go on the job market for a fourth year. Um, I had promised myself not to go on the job market for a third year. So when it when it came to it, I really had to leave. And I wrote a piece about one aspect of leaving that is not something I had seen written about, but that was really important to me, which was broadly about what actually does it mean to lose this much knowledge production and this many people within a discipline uh, every single year. Um, The title of the piece was The Sublimated Grief of the Left Behind. The left behind in the piece was people who got the job. And uh, it has been difficult for me to recommend history as a field that teaches critical reading skills based on how often people have misread the piece. Um, You know, it it wasn't so much about me. It was about what is it, what is it like to, or what would it be like to grapple with these kind of losses on an existential level, on a, on an affective level. And uh, I just sort of wrote it 
thinking like, I got to talk about this to the few people who, who I know in the field and I know on Twitter. And then it, it sort of uh, touched a nerve um, and became pretty widely read. And it was really my first brush with, uh, with the kind of peer review that comes from that kind of public sphere. So what was the major thing you were trying to get across in that article? I mean, I was really trying to get people to think about if theoretically we think the work we do in a given field is important, what does it actually mean when fewer and fewer people are able to do that work every single year? Like, what does it actually mean to the discipline? Part of it was about the way that academic training can make you feel not particularly useful in a lot of other ways, but also the real reality that most of what I learned and did in my academic career was not useful for other jobs. And so some of it was pushing back against one of the ways that the American Historical Association had tried to get around confronting the crisis of the academic job market, which was to recommend all these um, other careers. It was all the things you can do with a PhD. So I was sort of pushing back at the that, that many of these jobs were things you could do despite a PhD, but you didn't need to have sacrificed your 30s and your finances to get it. One question that I had about that, I wrote I wrote a piece for the Chronicle of Higher Education I co-wrote with Michael Brennis that made the argument mm-hmm. that all that the AHA should basically just abandon all DAC, that it's actually just playing yeah. into the neoliberal logic of the, the defunding of the humanities and the discipline of history more specifically. And I and I it was interesting. I, I got a lot of pushback. I, I, I would say the pushback was of two types. First, people said that I was deriding people who didn't want to use the PhD for a non-academic career. I think that's clearly, obviously wasn't the case. Um, And then the other set of uh, pushbacks was that there actually are jobs out there. So I was wondering, I imagine you seemed kind of, uh, I I imagine you received similar arguments and I was wondering what you thought of both of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I did. And I think, uh, tell what I'm doing in my museum life, what kind of data the AHA does and doesn't collect is really important to me here. I never, ever in my life encountered nearly as many people who were getting the PhD to do something else with it as these online conversations suggest. Um, that, that this, this is training for a very particular thing. Um, so I think that is, uh, as you said, no, no, uh, criticism of anyone who gets the degree to do these other things. I just don't think there are very many of those people. And the few bits of data we have suggest that pretty much everybody goes to get this degree to do this one thing. I think one of the really tough things about the the first point you brought up is you have the kind of structural level of not wanting to play into the neoliberal logic. And then the very realistic personal thing of I have to eat and I have to pay my rent. And, and I think that's, what's really hard is that you want, you know, I want to pay contingent, scholars when they write something, because until we do something else, that's the way I can, can recognize it. Um, I think, I think it was the most facile, thin, thin argument to make. Like it was complete nonsense. This idea that everyone could and wanted to go get these other jobs and it was used for other things. I think it was kind of a wasted decade. Um, why do you think they you know? did it? Because I think, yeah, I, I totally yeah. agree. I'm curious why you think they did it because I entered grad school in 2007 and it was already like alt act and, and, and it was, 
from day one, it was obviously not true. I mean, like yeah. just you, you look around with your eyes. It was just totally, it was just frankly, it was bullshit. They were, yeah. there was no, there were the, the, the adjacent fields were themselves collapsing as anyone with any connection to them knows. <laughs> uh, and there's just no logical reason for a seven year, six year, five year research degree to do these other uh, forms of labor, not to discredit mm-hmm. them. It's just a different type of labor that all mm-hmm. labor is equal. Um, so I was just wondering, what do you think? I, I mean, we're kind of historicizing the present here, but what do you think motivated the major professional organization to basically go all in in a quixotic doom to fail, obviously, project? Yeah, and I think it's it's worth historicizing the present because even watching my the moment that I left academia get rewritten as you know as a slightly worse collapse has happened uh, is important to me. I mean, I think, and I remember. It's terrible. I did not reread that piece before this. I remember one one of the real arguments around your piece was whether or not the AHA could act as a union. Like there was a lot of discoursing around 501 organizations from people who did not know anything. Like if Karl Rove can set up a BS 501 org to funnel money, the AHA can do something. And it's in federal statute. It's the only thing guaranteed to have a job. So I think that that was a bunch of nonsense, but I think I saw a reflection of it in, in responses to some of my more recent writing. Um, that like, as soon as you start talking about anything that looks like organizing, people say, well, we can't be a union. Folks, organizing existed before and outside of the NLRB. It exists in right to work states. Uh, I think, I think a lot of it was sort of, we, we want to find ways to say we're not doing this thing we're afraid of doing and we don't like doing, which is actual organizing uh, and stuff like that. Um, but I think, I, I think the jump- re- yeah. Oh, sorry, I just want sure. to jump in for a second because it's very funny that in you know the the Tucker Carlson space, the media space of Tucker Carlson, like historians are all imagined as rabid left wing ideologues, and to me, historians are basically as a group as centrist status quo democratic party establishment as one could possibly get. Um, so yeah. I would curious if you disagree with that or what do you think the ideological composition of the historian class is? Now, obviously guys, this is based on our being in a profession for a while. It's, this is not a Nate Silver esque survey. So these will inevitably <laughs> be impressions, but I think it's a question worth asking and worth considering. Danny doesn't want to admit that he's been taken over by the woke mind virus. <laughs> is the thing. That's why he's asking this question. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, I think historians are probably the most aware and anxious about this because they are, in fact, probably more aware than most people about that question of whatever you think you would have been doing in the past is what you would, is what you're doing right now. Um, and I think, frankly, I think labor historians are often the, the worst at this kind of stuff. Like, I get it. You're aware of how hard this work is. And you just throw up your hands. I mean, I think a really important part of it is thinking about who made up the group of historians over the period we are talking about. Uh, and I think the opening up of graduate education to over the last 30 plus years of of women, people who are not white, and people who are working class has shaped the composition of who's in there. Um, I think that's an important thing. But we can all get co-opted really easily. Um, I don't think many people have a background in organizing in, in any way. I think, though, for people who are afraid of ideas, 
and and exposure to ideas that could change the way young people think, I don't think that's an illegitimate fear. I think I think the idea that that is sort of actively being promoted in the behavior of people's faculty is is nonsense. That that you are much more likely to be able to teach about a wildcat strike than to be able to do one, um, and and are clearly not likely to do that uh, as a historian. Um, but I also think that we want to think about how we slice. Essentially, what are the different flavors of leftism that might appear in academia? Um, and class activism seems to be the, the weakest. Right. So why do you think that is? I mean, I think I think there there are different valences of, of leftism, but it does think, except until I would say very, very recently and almost totally at the graduate school level, there's been like an upsurge where even people in the sciences are voting in favor of unionization, which wasn't true a decade or so ago. But I, I think it's worth yeah. sort of slicing the professoriate. And why do you think class-based activism is just... Um, not as relevant as other forms or other forms of activism that are traditionally coded in the U.S. context as leftist? Well, I'll tell you this, though, and I think this is really important to start with, that the harshest criticism of what was essentially a thousand-word piece that I wrote came from white male leftists. And the amount of time I've had to spend being like, dumbasses, I gave up the last year of my dissertation to be on the two years to be on the organizing committee to organize my cohort, uh, the graduate students at UConn in the fastest higher ed organizing campaign in US history. When all of mechanical engineering signs a card in the first couple of weeks, you know it is it is bad. So I think it has become more visible, even the graduate student organizing, because it's become elite private universities. I don't think it's the case that the activity is of a higher level. I suspect it is just one of those things where when you get successes, uh, because something turns over, it looks like it's a higher level. Um, For sure. Maybe, you know, right. I mean, we're always organized. <laughs> we're always yeah. organizing on some level. Um, that, that, I, there I, may it, have been earlier decades that, that it, it, it does have been flow, though. I know at my own university, yeah. it, it was fallow for a very, very long time. And I think I, I my yeah. guess would be that in the 80s and 90s, it was pretty low. I'm, I'm willing yes. to make, from what I know about the history of higher education, my guess yeah. is that it was pretty low. My guess is that post. 2001-ish, it starts to get up. Post-2008, it starts to get up. And then really post-2016 yeah. and now post-COVID. That would be, that would be my, um, my yeah. guess. But, but what, what, I what's mean, your... I mean, I guess... So your argument, your, your question here is really sort of like, why is that kind of organizing not going to happen in the professoriate class? And I guess my question is sort of, do you think it is more or less likely to happen among that class than any other comparable, highly educated, largely office-working type folks? The difference is the industry was destroyed. Um, I think uh, well, so, so. journalism, another, I mean, thinking of comparable industries, where is it more or less likely? And thinking about the fact that the professors, many of them may already be in unions, the weakest, most milquetoast unions in the world, but they're in them. Uh, so I would say the difference between uh, the professoriate is the tenure. So journalists mm -hmm. don't have tenure. So when you close down there. the St. Louis Dispatch or whatever, there's there's really nowhere to go. So what what, mm -hmm. what makes that absence surprising is the combination of tenure with the destruction of the discipline. Um, because theoretically, you have people who it would be very difficult to get fired, particularly as a class uh, at a space. So you have people with like clear institutional power choosing not to use it. That's how I would explain it. And that's different than basically every other field in the United States. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, but I think this is where thinking about what the actual work of organizing face-to-face, day-to-day looks like. And this is a thing that I think, I, I actually don't think we talk about nearly enough within these kinds of spaces. Like my, my like glib line to people is, did you ever do something that makes you uncomfortable around the provost all the time now? If you didn't, that then you didn't really do anything yet. But that like, it, it's hard to get people to do this work, uh, especially in a situation where they have some security. I think the, the real question is like the idea that you can't get rid of people because they've got tenure. Like Wisconsin was getting that eroded when I was in grad school. That that's it's uh, possible, but while. it's not this. It's possible, but it's not the structural reality. No, I would no, say, no, Particularly in the eighties and the nineties, there are extreme well, but, cases where the tenure yeah. is is taken away, and you have the um, what's his name? Uh, Scott, I forget his name. The Wisconsin guy. You have DeSantis now. Um, I, I, I but admit the, the, that as that I, happens more and more, that does not seem to be shifting the conversation. It seems to be an important thing that even when that security looks like it's gone, it's not lighting a fire. Exactly. Why do you think that is? The historian's question. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Why is it not lighting a fire? Because to me, it it basically not only the whole purpose of uh, the arts of which we are a part is to be in dialogue. And it's literally sacrificing generations of scholars to the point where the people who are writing today, even if you're at Princeton or Harvard, if no one reads your book, it seems to have basically undermined the entire project. But you still don't see a, a, a lasting, not only the entire project, and it, it undermines what you devoted your life to, but we don't see a response. So to me, that does necessitate some form of answer. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly think it's that people actually don't really care as much about their job or the field, certainly the field, as they pretend that they do. And I, I the thing I find most laughable is the uh, the folks who, the people leaving tenured positions who are saying, we're, we're writing quit lit now too. Like, fine, you can have that term. Our, our lives are not the same here. Um, who all think they're going to like write history in their spare time. Like you with with what access and what time? Like you yeah, have no, to have that's so job. ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It, it's, yeah, it's really dumb. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. but I, I but I think it is it is that people actually really don't think about things on a on a field level, and I sort of have wondered if there's that thing where you get to grad school and you think, okay, finally I'm around people where it won't be I won't be like a weird loser for being really earnest and caring about things. And like within two weeks, getting someone being like, you've got to leave this stuff in the classroom. You know, I think there's a fair amount of just sort of dilettante. Like I like to noodle around on my cool thing and I got job security and I don't particularly care because here's the thing. Like if we're talking about the field collapsing and like your field and my field are real different. I'll say like in the 2008 recession, uh, when they were like, we got to claw back money from every department. My grad department had two lecture series, one in foreign policy, one in gender and history. They both got axed. Foreign policy had money back within two weeks from some outside donor. So the thing is, there have been fields where, where there has been a collapse for a long time. Foreign policy is interesting because there's donor money, but there's no positions. So but foreign no policy- occupies a very weird place because there's literally zero positions, but every school might have a lecture series on it because some rich guy likes foreign yeah. policy. Yeah. Or, or in my case, you have a very strong foreign policy program and the predecessor scholar, you know, th- that it's, it's a strong field. But I think more broadly, I honestly think it is really important to think about the ways that fields that have 
been, had fallen victim to this or have had no jobs for a long time, the field itself has been really willing to just be like, well, those aren't that important. Those were niche fields. Like we have enough. We hired it. We hired a historian of women 30 years ago. She's still here. Why do we need another one? Like, uh, you know, listening to and people women's who are military. History. Oh yeah. Sorry. Yep. I, I'd, lo- I mean, I'd love to hear about women's history because that's such an interesting case because it kind of transforms into the history of gender, which is not quite the yep. same thing. So could you talk about, if you wouldn't mind, I'd well, love to hear about sure. that. Sure. I mean, I think I, I, I like to reflect a lot on when people talk about the number of jobs they applied to and, and in their field and listening to military historians moan about how many jobs there are. Never once did I apply for a job that was a general U.S. history job that listed religion as one possible subfield. So my like subfields are like women, ideas, and religion. And really, I dealt with conversion. So uh, in the 19th century, and the number of times I had to sort of point out that I am talking about half the population and the largest single denomination in the country. And I frequently got a lot of like, this is niche, this is niche. And I think it was Alice Kessler-Harris wrote a piece probably 15 years ago now, like, do we still need women's history? Like, what did it do? How has it changed the narrative? Have we moved from the little shaded box at the side of the textbook page into into anything else? Um, that no matter no matter what a women's historian does, their work is still understood to be niche and not central in any way to uh, the story of U.S. history. If that's what they're doing, and I I think that is. The the frequent response to me, you know, I'm 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 tracking a network of thousands of women who convert to Catholicism at the height of anti-Catholicism in the 19th century. Uh, f- members of every prominent family you've ever heard of. Every one of their experiences runs completely counter to what received wisdom would tell us would happen in a situation like that. And the question I would get is like, well, how many women are we actually talking about? And and my question was sort of like. Well, how many, what is the conversion ratio of how many women is equivalent to one guy that is a, is a, a valid cohort to study? There is, I mean, I think women's history sort of replicates the problems of the New England town study over and over again. We studied like two towns and we're like, well, that's probably enough. You're not creating anything new here. So we'll just base all of our understanding on like what happened in Dedham in a hundred years. Cause that's what Ken Lockridge did. And it's like, well, how much more could studying more women tell us? Could it tell us anything else? Probably not. Like it's all, it's all pretty much the same. And and you see it, you see the seeds of it in every book from the nineties that tells a chronological story and then has a chapter about black Americans and has a chapter about women who exist outside of time. Uh, that never got fixed. That never got resolved. And I've taught, more U.S. foreign policy than many comparable elite grads have had hot dinners because I had to teach a ton. I mean, I taught for 15 years. Watching the Dobbs decision and watching so many people who could not be bothered to learn anything about any of this history, try to find the historians who could come in and do a talk for them. Oh, where are those historians? They're out of the academy because they didn't get hired. Uh, that, that, that really sort of struck me that like how parochial you are allowed to be 
as a, as, as a historian in certain areas. Um, it didn't matter how broad my fields of study were or what my teaching experience was. It was, uh, oh, will you study these subjects? They make you niche. And it's, it's quite a thing when what is niche is like 85% of the pie. And, and I think about, you know, you mentioned in your VCNA that like, we're at this moment now when the field has collapsed and we've got DeSantis, like who knows if that college will even exist or will have been sold off to some real estate developer. It's Florida. It always comes back to real estate. Um, it would have been cool for any professional organization to give a shit about this, about the kind of political problems in the field or the like economic collapse at a point any time before they both came together in this nightmare scenario. Like, both of these were easily seeable problems. And instead, it was like, everything has a history, including the collapse of our discipline. I, you know, I guess we'll just, we'll just move on. What do you think, <laughs> what do you, what do you think that is? It's so strange that the major professional organization has basically taken no, no real initiative on the it's the the very collapse for its reason for being i mean honestly i think a huge part of it is you know how we always sort of struggle with the fact that of course faculty are terrible at hr they're not trained to do any of this the people who are serving in in the aha and i don't necessarily mean the the staff employed there who are often doing you know the lord's work trying to get anything done but they don't know what to do I mean, they literally don't know what to do. Um, and there's not a lot of strategic thinking. The things that get you to leadership in the AHA are not the same skills you'd need to do anything like this. Um, and I also think that, like, there's just a lot of, and you see this in nonprofits too, there's just a lot of, like, I don't want to make the provost upset. I want to get invited to his dinner party. There, I mean, so it's a, it's a bourgeois, it's, it's a bourgeois yeah. profession, basically. It's a, I, mean, I think and the it people has, who end up, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if the, if one's class origins aren't, I mean, you're a cult, you're so acculturated in college and then especially graduate school. In and sort the of people at the top, norms. yeah, the people at the top are, are the most insulated. I mean, when I was in grad school, there were two AHA presidents in a row from Chicago um, you know, we, we sort of talked about and the argument as to why we've never had an AHA president. I mean, I think they once let somebody from Dartmouth run it during the war. Um, but, you know, the argument is we can't have somebody from a different kind of institution because these are the kind of institutions that give you a teaching leave so you can be the president. Then fucking change how you, how you pay the person who runs the organization. Like, that's not an answer. That's what do you think the role meritocracy as an ideology plays here? I mean, like, number one, I think it is really important to talk about, like, most creation of knowledge is super important and we love doing it. If you ask people in the regular world what university professors do, what their job is, it is teaching. And I am sorry, but, like, it was really tough to be in interviews with people where I'm like, you could not teach your way out of a wet paper bag. You have no understanding of, of the work that, that I'm doing, but sure. Uh, I mean, I think they don't value that. That's not understood to be an indicator of merit. Um, and I think we all know that. 
and it should be of real concern. Um, I think AHA has done a lot of things. Uh, I, I think they're very small given the, the scope of the problem. Um, but I also sort of think reading a lot of applications is hard. We've come up with, these are things that indicate merit. Somebody else I know said this project has merit. That's how you get to the end of something. And you're like, how did nobody tell them they didn't have an argument in their dissertation? Like what? Because the idea sounded cool and it just sort of, you can snowball your way into a, into a good job. Um, but I suppose there's also the fact that like, you know, when I left, when 20% of people got jobs, all I heard was like, well, of course you're not good. And of course your field isn't good. And of course your subfields are bad. And Did your dissertation really probably isn't good. People oh, said that on Twitter. Yeah. Well, a lot of, uh, I, I don't know why historians thought that like gossip wouldn't get back to me, but of course right, it did. So they but, said it behind your back. Yeah. But I also, you know, uh, I approved every comment on, um, and, and I think one, one important thing is like, it was republished in the Chronicle. This was in 2018. This happened when comment sections still existed. So I saw everything that people said. Um, and, it's why the second most read page on my website is my CV. Because it was like, oh, they can go to that and it's fine. And they can say, oh, well, you know, X, Y, and Z, this is why she wasn't, she wasn't good. Uh, funnily enough, when it gets to 10%, I'd always said, if someone from a better school, and I, and I say school because the, I had a stacked committee of 19th century Americanists. It doesn't matter at all because I went to UConn. It's the school name that matters a lot of the time. If somebody else from a different school had written the piece that I wrote, maybe it would have been thought of differently. Plenty of people weren't getting jobs from those schools at that time as well. Um, but there was a, an incredible sort of push to find all the ways that all of us who weren't getting jobs were failures. And I was like, okay, then that's another problem because then you're giving PhDs and you're saying 80% of the people who get them don't deserve them. And a lot of people are like, yeah, I think we're just giving out a lot of PhDs to people who aren't good. Yeah, People say that a lot. <laughs> and I just want to just make clear, like the argument is, is sort of a supply and demand issue. It's, there's a lot of classes being taught in history. They're just being taught by people in shitty positions. But, but you, um, asked merit, you asked meritocracy and ideology and, and the effect there. I think this is a really important thing that like one of the kind of arguments that we, that scholars have made, it's sort of been like, okay, the university says it's the number of majors and we get a lot of majors and then they change it to, it's the number of seats filled. It's the number of classes filled. Like, and it, when they keep switching the metric, that should be a clue that it's an ideological thing, not just a, not just a profit thing. Because as we all know, and I think you mentioned too, like I, I brought my own dry erase markers and chalk if you're a class that can go outside in May, you are making money for the institution because you cost nothing and you teach a lot of classes. And the, that's what I think is really important to think about as we talk about the political moment, that even making a lot of money doesn't help you if, if there are ideological forces opposed to your field. So I have a question. It, it, it's it's related. So obviously the conservative critique of universities has focused so much on things like wokeness and everything like that. Is is this just the simple explanation? It's culture war. 
the reason that I'm, I'm loath to just say it's that simple is that quite intelligent people, I think, also focus on things like wokeness and ignore the total collapse of the humanities, which is ironic because, of course, the humanities, I would say, as, as a project started from an incredibly conservative right-wing place, um, but is now totally derided in favor of what might arguably more, more accurately you're a 19th centuryist be called a liberal <laughs> focus on pragmatism and earning money yep. and, and free market ideology. So it's yeah. just like, to me, it's always such a, a, a strange, slightly strange to explain blind spot uh, that conservatives had toward the collapse of the humanities. I wonder if, if you had any thoughts on that. I mean, it's hard because I think sometimes, you know, a stopped clock is right twice a day. And and I think often the critique that's coming from a conservative side about about universities is is completely disconnected from anything that is happening in these places. Um, and sometimes it happens to be right, but not in the ways that they necessarily anticipate. Um, and which I think shows like the level of disconnect from that, the project itself, that the critiques don't sound anything like what we actually do, what, uh, what historians might teach that, that is a kind of a woke project. But I do think it is, I don't think it is purely a, a conservative thing. And, and I would always sort of think about the, um, the moment after Thanksgiving break, where a kid would come in and say, oh, I have to change majors. Like my dad said, I have to be an economics major. And I was like, if your dad understood more about universities, he'd understand like he doesn't actually an economics degree isn't what you want. You, you wanted a business degree and your moment to get into the B school actually already passed. Um, I, and I think that has, that is a, a kind of deeply like, is this major also the name of a job I've heard of? But it means that you got a lot of upper middle class kids getting electrical engineering degrees when I was like, you wanted to be an electrician. That's it. You know, it's it's the old sort of Mitt Romney's like, not everybody needs to go to college. Funnily enough, it's your dumbass kids who who always get to go. Um, you're they're not becoming plumbers and things like this. Um, but I think it is I think the idea that, you know, of the ground for the woke ideology comes out of universities, isn't this what they're doing? it seems well prepared by decades and decades of underwater basket weaving narratives, which were very central. And it was weird because my dad who has a, you know, uh, has a, a BS in meteorology and, you know, tells me stories about like the end of his English class at a tech Institute, them saying, write in a blue book, the grade you think you should get. And him being like a good ethical Irish Catholic boy, like wrote like B plus. And that's what they all got. Uh, after I went to college, he was sort of like, we used to, liberal arts got made fun of when I went to college as like, you can't do anything with this. And I now sort of understand it better as a thing that equips you to do a lot of things. I don't think many more people beyond my dad kind of got that idea. Well, so I think it's, it's always there in, so in this is actually views. This is pretty compelling because the humanities' big defense, as the AHA was doing nothing, the humanities' big defense was we actually provide you with the skills to get a job. And it just always seemed to me, again, from 2007, that that was a losing argument because it's very, they're actually parallel things, right? It's very similar to the Alt Act. A way of thinking, which is that like it isn't really for this, but if you kind of squint at the right angle, you can make an argument that it is for that. Whether we're talking to leave academia and do another career, or whether we're talking, you know, to be a business analyst, 
yeah, yeah, I mean, history provides you with soft skills, but like, it's not really for the purpose of being a business analyst. And if that's what you want well, to do, there's far better ways to do it. But I wonder, because one thing that always really was was baffling to me and, and sort of frustrating to the whole project is that you would hear a lot from people in the theoretical, the business community that they were like, actually, can you not produce so many business majors? Like that's a garbage degree and it doesn't do anything. You know, that a friend of mine, um, who I knew working in the archives at UConn, who was a history and business double major and like, was like the people who hired me were like, yeah, whatever. We could probably teach you all the rest of that here. Like we needed somebody who could like read and write a memo and like (laughs) process information thoroughly. So the real crap part from a from the perspective of, well, maybe people could get jobs, is that there do seem to be lots of people who could recognize those skills. The the you know, whether or not whether or not people are allowed to or choose to get those degrees is one thing. Um, but there does seem to be like at least some recognition of the value of those soft skills that, of course, you know, I feel like all of these are conversations that are situated like even five to 10 years ago when skills had meaning and the labor market made, or we could even pretend it made some sense. Um, but I do think that's, that's always been the case that like the, the alt argument and the, this prepares you to do a bunch of jobs and the main, you know, in, in whatever industries were always the same. And it wasn't clear that the professional organizations were skilled at making them on either level, which should have been a clue. Why do you think the profession or the humanities writ large has been so unable to defend itself? I mean, it, it a presumes that they want to, um, as a, I think individuals want to want to defend maybe the dignity of what they do. Um, whether the, it is important to the profession uh, all indications would suggest it does not, um, because why then would the AHA president decide this was the hill to die on publicly? These these conversations about about presentism, um, but I also think like we we are such a the ways in which it's very complicated. Actually, there's a little more nuance than that. Even in thinking about this, I'm thinking about like these big systems and, you know, people say, well, it's because of divestment in public education. There's a lot of private university, like none of these are simple causes. Um, And you can cut this out if you want, but it's my, my way of thinking about it is episode of community, which is a show that probably told us more about higher ed than most places where it's like, oh no, Joe Biden's coming and we forgot to elect a university like student government president. And, you know, one character basically goes from presenting a nuanced policy platform to the boldest, dumbest, no matter what you're told, you've got to clean the mold, like get the mold out of the stairway. Like we cannot present an overblown existential argument one that is not, maybe not fully true, but like the unwillingness to just actually say like, people are lying to you, like to use those those terms and those framings and to talk about it in an existential way and to talk about, to use essentially the same uh, language that the people aiming to destroy it are using. I don't know if that would work, but we don't 
seem willing to do it. And that's kind of where my question is about like, how important do you guys think this is to, to know it? And if, if you, if your study has not made you feel that way, then fucking move over and give your job to somebody who, who is willing to sort of be a, be essentially a firebrand union leader over this. Yeah, of which of which there are certainly many. What do you think yeah. will happen? What's your prediction about what will happen? Insert the Price is Right burner uh, thing here. I mean, I wrote a lot in my most recent thing at the AHA, which frankly I maybe wouldn't have published if they hadn't given us such a shit slot. We were 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning. I wrote a lot about if we did this and if this doesn't happen or if this does happen. I think it's. I think it's done. I mean, I think the field as as understood. Uh, I agree. Hundred percent. It's lot. We've yeah. lost. We've lost the war, yeah. and I think it's. I think we lost yeah. the war at least ten years ago, and it's just becoming oh. increasingly obvious. I mean, probably it's, thirty it's that, years ago. <laughs> well, yeah. The 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 you know that the the best time to delete this tweet was ten years ago. The the next best time would be right now. Like the time to have done something about this was any time before this moment. And it's like that thing where you've put off a task and now you've made it a thousand times harder for yourself. And there are actually things which historians should understand, but don't. Sometimes you can't fix it. It's it's too late. The, the times to have done things were all those other times that you didn't do things. And, and now it's kind of done. Uh, and it's a real, it's a real bummer. And, and I get a lot of like, since I published that first piece, I constantly get asked like how to fix it, how to fix it. I'm like, guys, you told me I was too stupid for a job in this field. Why are you asking me how to fix what you have broken that you won't admit is broken? Uh, I mean, that's why people, you know, this most recent writing where I was sort of like, all of these problems of faculty burnout are clearly tied to, yes, this is what happens when you have deep levels of understaffing and, you know, you've let yourself get on the back foot so much. But, like, people, and people are like, whoa, this finally makes sense. Why? You're supposed to be smart. Like, people were telling you this all along. You didn't want to listen to them because, I don't know, they... I was saying the same things. Lots of people were saying the same things five, 10, 30 years ago. Um, and I think, I think the, I think one thing that might've been better, people lost their minds last fall over the jobs numbers. And that like, that is a pretty catastrophic uh, chart anyway. But I think our mistake was not using raw numbers all along because it was what, it wasn't when we did a percentage. It was when we said 175 jobs. Because 175 people is less than a lecture hall. It's the number of people you can conceptualize. And people went, oh, shit. But, but like, it's done. That's where I am now, barring some yeah. exogenous shock I don't predict or <laughs> massive wave of faculty organizing, not only within the discipline, but across and across the university as a whole with various well, yeah, staff then, members. You yeah. Know, sorry. Yeah. You, you want, you want it. People are like, oh, but this can't be just, this can't just be within the discipline. You've got to go, you know, you've got to be thinking cross discipline. I got all these sort of like, what you should be talking to all the things. And I'm like, yeah, but 
uh, the people within the discipline. No, that's have a ridiculous to be activated, argument. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. No, that, that's a, that's just I want to disagree with you argument. Um, yeah. So why don't why don't we end on on two, uh, these two questions? What would you tell someone who's about to complete their PhD, and what would you tell someone considering entering a PhD program in history? A PhD in history, I should say. Uh, first one completing their PhD in history. Second, considering doing that. Well, this is someone will be able to go back because I have been asked this question, both of these questions several times, you know, in the past X years. Um, and I will see if it would change. I mean, I think in both cases, the advice has to be about uh, taking stock of where, what you either in the case of someone leaving, what you brought with you um, in someone going, what you might bring with you, because one thing that academia doesn't do is change the social capital you came into grad school with. And I think that that is a thing that people do not want to think about. That if you are leaving grad school and you came in already upper middle class and fairly well connected in a lot of ways, just like undergrad, where your BA is often a piece of paper that lets the person in your network hire you, a PhD can function in a similar way. To the person going, so there's a person going out, I would sort of say like, I mean, sometimes say, say you were in a coma for 10 years, like that might be a better, that might be a better thing. Um, do not listen to people on Twitter talking about the salaries that they make in their other jobs, even if they are high, which they usually aren't, they do not make up for the money that you lost. So be realistic about that. But for people going in, I would, I would advise them not necessarily just to think about this as a thing where if you don't get a job at the end, it's fine, you'll do something else. The PhD is in many cases a millstone around your neck in terms of creating a new career uh, after you've finished it. And it is really hard to hear do not do this thing that you love doing that you think is important, especially if that, that thing is the teaching, because it will, you will have to start over again 10 years from now. But it's, it's the reality. And before it was, don't go to a place if they're not going to pay you. Well, of course. And then it became, don't go to a place unless it's a top program. That, that's not viable. And if you're Elite programs have been in trouble for a while. Frankly, a lot of the second-tier programs, they cut the number of people they were cranking out. Uh, the elite ones necessarily haven't. But if you don't know all of the people in your program who didn't get jobs, it's because your program is lying to you. Um, and and that's a really important thing to think about when you're going in, um, that you should presume that you are not going to get a job in the professoriate when you leave. And if you can say, that's all right, I'm going to have this life. I'm going to accept that knowing that I won't get a job and that I will have a degree it's very hard to explain and that everyone will essentially mock you for being overeducated and undereducated at the same time. If that's what you want to live with, you know, knock yourself out. Also, learn to use Excel. Aaron Bartram, thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks again. <laughs> Thanks for having me.